Strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies, and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we're going to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years, and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you live from the Calm Radio Studios here on Arundel Country in Central Australia. We're broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911, Renekin FM 100.5 here in Alice Springs and Bantua. We're also coming to you uh, online via the Karma website at karma.com.au. Today is uh, Tuesday, the 20th of August, 2019. I'm your host, Kyle Dowling. You'll have my company up until 12 o'clock today. Well, coming up on Strong Voices, uh, last night's Q&A program from the ABC looked at the topic of constitutional recognition and an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Today, we're going to hear from veteran Aboriginal rights campaigner Michael Mansell, who will be discussing uh, comments from the program and his thoughts on the way forward. Also, earlier this month marked the 2019 Desert Harmony Festival in Tennant Creek. And today we're going to hear some interviews during the festival. Uh, We're going to be hearing from uh, Tennant Creek Mayor as well as one of the workshop facilitators at the festival for this year. Also as well, we're going to hear the very latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country as well with the wrap coming up during the show. But uh, before all of that, we are going to go to a quick break with a song and then we'll be right back. Hi, this is Pam from Karma and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. And welcome back to Strong Voices. You're here with me, Kyle Dowling, and we're going to be heading into our first interview of the show. Well, last night's edition of Q&A from the ABC explored the topic of constitutional recognition and a voice to Parliament program, leaving more questions unanswered than answered. Karma's Paul Wiles recently spoke with uh, veteran Aboriginal rights campaigner Michael Mansell, who shares his response to the program. And welcome back to the program. Well, last night's uh, edition of Q&A is uh, certainly the hot topic for the day. I think it left uh, more questions unanswered than it answered. Um, Certainly a lot of confusion running around people's minds about where to from here. Joining us on the line from Tasmania, an old friend joins us, Michael Mansell. Michael, welcome back. Thanks, Paul. Well, Michael, you saw Q&A last night. What did you think? One of the real problems with a discussion about the voice is that not enough people pay attention to the model that's being promoted. And the model that's being promoted is an advisory body. And it was plain from the panel last night that they didn't see the voice as being an advisory body, and so they're talking about something else. But, of course, they can't define the something else, which really does create or add to the confusion. And I think the uh, single thing that was missing last night was an appreciation of why a voice cannot work in its current form because on the one hand Noel Pearson 
uh, Megan Davis and Pat Anderson, in order to make their voice model politically palatable, have to make it less and less powerful to the stage it becomes meaningless. You know, for example, their model can't deliver services, can't uh, give Aboriginal people land, can't distribute resources, can supervise absolutely nothing. It's just an advisory body. Whereas I think that some of the other people on the panel were saying, well, that's not what Uluru talked about. They were talking about a powerful political voice. A bit like ATSIC, I think, uh, was the view that came out of Uluru, but with powers to deal with land, uh, powers to distribute resources, power to take control of Aboriginal affairs. So I think people are confused, and on the panel that showed, about what exactly the subject matter of the discussion was. As it was more than obvious, um, there seems to be a, a great deal of confusion about the voice, but at the end of the day, I'm sure that the Uluru statement was not meaning that an advisory body would be the voice. The whole idea of, uh, of what came out of Uluru was that Aboriginal people would have a capacity to make their own decisions and not again have an advisory body going to Parliament putting in requests. Precisely. Uh, and that's where the confusion began after the Uluru statement was rejected by the then Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. So instead of the people in charge of dealing with the aftermath of Uluru, sticking to their guns and saying, well, there has to be a treaty which should provide all the mechanics that would enable Aboriginal people to practice self-determination and make the key decisions about their communities so that they prosper. And saying that as part of that treaty, the voice has to be an independent, powerful political voice that has control over resources, distribution of resources, priorities and so on. Instead of doing that they started to water the voice down without getting their consent or getting um, feedback from the people who were at Uluru to the stage now that people who are at Uluru are still talking about the sort of thing that you summed up there as a powerful political voice, whereas the model that's being proposed nationally now on the Q&A is for an advisory body, and that's where the confusion really does reign. Where to from now, Michael? I mean, uh, you've been at this game for a long, long time. I mean, you've seen over many, many years, three, four decades, the, the stalling tactics of Australian governments to continue to deny First Nations peoples what rightfully belongs to them, and that is a say in the running of their own country. The government's very happy to have this discussion about uh, something that no one can quite put their finger on, what it all means. So they've just now pumped $7 million, I'm told, into the promotion of either this abstract notion of a voice which is an advisory body or constitutional recognition. So the government has said there's no way we can uh, put to a referendum something that the public of Australia doesn't understand and nor do we. So they were never going to go to a referendum on the voice. They're talking about symbolic gestures of reconciliation. And as we know, 
the states recognised Aboriginal people in their constitutions from 2002 to 2017. And there's been absolutely no benefit flowing from that. So what we need to do is to say, forget the voice. It's travelled down this tragic path to be now meaningless. And what we need to do is to put all our efforts into campaigning for the federal government to legislate the establishment of a treaty commission. That treaty commission, once it's established by legislation, should take a draft treaty around Australia to see if the treaty is workable. And that draft treaty should cover which Crown lands should be returned in freehold to Aboriginal communities. What wealth and power is going to be shared by Aboriginal people with governments, both state and federal, and any other sort of practical proposal that a treaty could cover. And then that commission should be able to do its work within the life of this parliament and report back to parliament and say, here's the legislation you need to pass that gives Aboriginal people all the tools that we need to make our communities prosper. We've seen in the past, going back to the land rights and treaties and giving giving the mob uh, ownership of their own land, governments obviously don't want to go down that road. So the dilemma is, uh, and the reality is, here we are 20, 30 years down the track after these conversations began and very little has been achieved. All the more reason to have a body going around Australia that's independent of government, and that's what a treaty commission uh, can achieve. When you look at the issue of the injustice that Aboriginal people have suffered over two centuries, including dispossession, disempowerment, discrimination, the taking away of children and so on. It really goes to the heart and soul of the Australian nation that there has to be a settlement. And when it gets down to the nature of the settlement being so fundamental to the whole fabric of Australian society, that decision should not be in the hands of 15 conservative people in the Cabinet of the coalition government. It should be taken out of their hands because it's too big a decision and should be put in the hands of the Australian public. Now, the first stage of that is to give information to the Australian public through a treaty commission that takes around a draft treaty. And the whole point of the commission would be, how does this affect your interests, Aboriginal people or white people? And that commission should be able to report back to the whole of the parliament, not just to the Liberal government. And that's where we all have to join forces and campaign to have the findings of the Treaty Commission legislated by the parliament because the commission's report should reflect the views of middle Australia and the people who are positive. The word leaders was thrown around quite often and continues to be thrown around. Where is... Australia's Nelson Mandela, where is someone who can be that unifying voice amongst the mob? Well, there used to be an avenue uh, for Aboriginal leaders to come through with fire in the belly. And that avenue was through Aboriginal organisations that reflected the views of their local and regional and state uh, communities. 
the problem, as we all know, is that those organisations now have become completely beholden to the federal government's money machine. The organisations don't put their heads up out of the trenches because they're afraid they might lose the money. And as a consequence of that, an Aboriginal person who's got fire in the belly and who potentially could be a leader of Aboriginal people for the next 10 years doesn't get a looking. We haven't been able to find a way, when I say we, the National Aboriginal Movement, to find an alternative path for uh, young Aboriginal leadership who don't want to go into public service type job with Aboriginal organisations, but instead want to campaign for the bigger picture. And so we have to work out a way for that to happen. The land councils are a possibility. The legal services are not. And so we're now looking to the land councils, Northern Territory, Central Land Council, the Tasmanian Land Council, New South Wales. They've got to open up their doors and promote people who have a chance to stand up and represent our broad interests. Pat Turnham made uh, an interesting comment in regard to how the peak Aboriginal organisations have engaged uh, at COAG level where they're now at the table. I mean, uh, is there anything that can be taken out of that model? Oh, look, I doubt it. Um, you know, good luck to them if they can achieve it. I went to a COAG meeting two years ago when Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister and it was just an opportunity for the state and federal political leaders just to hear our views and then say thanks for coming. And that's part of the problem. I think that Pat Turner and Nacho and these other organisations have got a campaign to get the resources removed from the Prime Minister's office, which I think is what Pat Turner's on about. But it has to go into a credible national Aboriginal body that has powers to do a range of things, not just administer the fund. On that note, uh, Michael Mansell, many thanks for joining us. Thanks again, Paul, for the invitation. That was veteran uh, Aboriginal rights campaigner Michael Mantle there speaking with Karma's Paul Wiles. We're going to go to a break now and then we'll be right back with the uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. On top of our own strong face, Nana, news about Nguyen Mapa or Nguyen Commuting or your stationing, Karma Radio and 8KN FM. That's right, you're listening to Calm Radio. You're here with me, Carl Darling, for Strong Voices. I'm very happy to welcome into the studio Carmen's Damien Williams for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from the country. Good morning, Damien. Good morning, Carl, and good morning to all our listeners. Well, Damien, uh, let's start off with uh, one story from you. I understand you've got a story in regards to a water project from uh, NBA star uh, Paddy Mills. Yeah, um, Spurs uh, superstar. This one's coming from this um, My San Antonio Spurs uh, website as well. Um, Paddy Mills launches a water project benefiting remote Australian Aboriginal communities. Um, throughout his career, Mills has found different ways to assist or advocate his culture um, his Aboriginal culture and uh, with Mills officially launched the project as part of the 2019 International Indigenous Basketball and Cultural Showcase which intended to be a curtain raiser before the Australian National Team's exhibition game um, later this week um, and uh, the <coughs> sorry I'm just uh, having a look here the um, the, to start the week's schedule, a traditional welcome event was hosted in Mildura 
um, in Australia as well. And the event was used to reveal that uh, Mills, AIB and Zero Mass Water combined to install source hydro panels in six very remote Aboriginal communities um, plighted by the water disparities. Uh, and the the source hydro panels project costs between 5500 and 6500 according to the Zero Water Mass website. Um, and the water mass sources uh, need only sunlight and air to be able to make um, drinking water. So um, it's very uh, awesome to see um, people like Patty, um, you know, getting behind and, and looking after uh, those people that, um, yeah, don't have the, the, uh, enough to be able to bring those projects across. Yeah, as we know, there are a lot of communities who are doing it tough, in particular in, in regards to drinking water. I believe we just you know, talked about a story, I think it was uh, last week, in regards to the community of Yundamu and you know concerns around you know the very fact of not having enough water. And mm. then there was talking about the water that they do have not even being really that drinkable so yeah. I think you know any sort of support that they can offer in that area definitely very important uh, I understand you also had a story in regards to uh, young Aboriginal people wanting to uh, you know have their voices heard as well yeah um, a group of students um, uh, from across the country have just shown what um, real leadership uh, looks like when it comes to Indigenous issues. At the Gama Festival, 65 Indigenous and non-Indigenous students from year 6 to 12 came together for a youth forum and wrote their own follow-up to the 2017's uh, Uluru Statement from the Heart, and they called it the Imagination Declaration. It challenges uh, to it's a challenge to the Prime Minister and Education Minister to involve young people and Indigenous Australians in particular in making policies about their future. Um, there's a bit of uh, an excerpt from the um, statement as well. With 60,000 years, 60, years of genius and imagination in our hearts and minds, we can be one of the groups of people that transforms the future of life on Earth for the good of all of us. We can design the solutions that lift islands up in the face of rising seas. We can work on creating creative agricultural solutions that are in sync with our natural habitat. We can re-energize schooling, um, re-engineer schooling. We can invent new jobs and technologies and we can unite around kindness. And uh, we are not the problem, we are the solution. So the, the students are really looking to, um, you know, push their views when it comes to things like the statement from the heart as well and, and mm. trying to get politicians and the, our leaders to listen. Yeah, definitely very important to make sure we, you know, not only listen to the people who have experience, but also the younger generations as well. Uh, Paul, you've just joined us in the studio. Good morning to you. Good, good morning. Yeah, I was uh, the the printer wasn't working, so <laughs> <laughs> I had a few problems. But uh, look, uh, just for uh, local people here in Mbantua, there's uh, currently a, a four day workshop uh, underway. Um, uh, I. I I would imagine it has been very well attended, but the uh, couple of the keynote speakers, um, Dr. Lewis Mal Madrona, is a um, uh, an American First Nations uh, man with uh, his family being uh, Cherokee and Lakota, um, but. Um, He's a, a family physician, psychiatrist, a neuropsychologist, and a geriatrician uh, affiliated with the University of New England, 
New England College of Medicine in Maine. Um, and Dr. Lewis and the other um, interesting person there is uh, Barbara Mainguy, who uh, is from Canada, and she uh, works extensively with First Nations peoples in Canada around uh, um, the use of culture in their own health care. So they're both... Um, um, bringing a, a different viewpoint um, to uh, health care delivery. I mean, uh, you know, some great work being done at the Centre for Remote Health over many years, and they continue to bring in uh, people from overseas, first other First Nations peoples in particular, um, to share their knowledge and understanding of uh, traditional cultural methods of uh, engaging um, um, and maintaining good health. So uh, um, we will uh, be catching up uh, later in the week with um, Dr. Lewis Mad- uh, Male Madrona and Barbara Mainguy. So um, that conference um, runs is currently running underway, running through until Thursday. Uh, the note on the um, workshop says uh, there is no charge, um, but these uh, for the events, but places are limited. Um, an RSVP was necessary, so maybe it's all full up. But we hope to bring you, or we, we will bring you, um, Dr. Lewis Malmadrona and Barbara Mainguy um, um, a little later um, in the week. So look forward to catching up and uh, um, hearing uh, their story um, from a different perspective. Mm. Well, on that note, Paul, Damien, thank you both for joining us for the news from around the country. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to go to a break now, and then we'll be right back. G'day, folks. This is Kutcher Edwards, and you're listening to Our Strong Voices here on Karma Radio. Well, earlier this month, the community of Tennant Creek came together for music, culture, art, theatre, workshops, and much more at the 2019 Desert Harmony Festival. The event, which is hosted by the by Barclay Regional Arts, uh, celebrated 30 years, and this year focused on my arts, my culture. During the festival, Karma's Agnes Cusack spoke with Tanner Creek Mayor Steve Edgington. Here's that conversation now. Hi, I'm uh, Steve Edgington. I'm the Mayor of the Barclay Regional Council. And Steve, how long have you been a part of this community? Well, on and off uh, since about 1994. I first came to the Barclay back in 1994. Uh, back then I was serving in the police force and I was uh, stationed at Ali Karung, which is about 170 kilometres down the road from here. I was the officer in charge there for around about three and a half years and in 1997 I came to Tennant Creek and spent three years here. And then uh, transferred out to Darwin but came back around about 2002 and uh, served here again until 2004. But uh, our family moved down to Adelaide for a while and I've been back here since 2011 uh, for the last eight years. So it's been fantastic. Why fantastic? Well, it's just been so challenging. I came back in 2011 and uh, I was uh, lucky to uh, get a a public sector job. I was heading up the public sector for uh, around about seven years and I've now been the mayor for just approaching two years and uh, some of the changes that I'm seeing right across the Barclay is just fantastic for this region. Uh, People I've spoken with say that when they were growing up here there was a lot more to do for kids. There was a lot of sporting activity and there were, you know, youth groups and things like that that they 
eyesight have disappeared. Do you think that's fair? I think it is fair. You know, when I look around, uh, you only have to go down to, say, a sporties club that look and, and look at some of the old photos. As, uh, uh, look, we still have structured uh, football competitions, the AFL Barclay. Uh, uh, look, the Barclay Australian Football League has been going for a number of years. Uh, we do have uh, the Ananingi Sports and Rec uh, facility at Perkis Reserve, and we, we run a Youth Links program. But look, things that happened, uh, uh, and a lot of this happened back in the mining days, there were structured sports for women, uh, like basketball, softball. For men, there was baseball, football, and even some rugby. So, look, a lot of that's fallen away. But I can tell you what, as council, we want to make sure that this is coming back, and we've got some big plans for Tennant Creek. So you think that it was an economic thing or tied to the mining? But oh, look, there's, uh, it's probably a combination of factors. Uh, certainly was the mines clo- closing down uh, in the late 80s. Uh, the population uh, probably uh, not necessarily halved, but uh, the population around those days was up around five, 6,000 people, including a number of people living out at Warrigo. So there was, a, there was a whole lot of population attached to mining and also uh, the meatworks, which were operating back then as well. So what we've seen is a downturn uh, in some of those economic opportunities. But as our council, uh, uh, we want to make sure that some of these opportunities come back. And at this, at, as we speak, you know, we're partnering with the Northern Territory Government to deliver $9 million investment at Perkis Reserve, which is our sporting uh, precinct. Now, in there, there's a football oval, but what we'll also be uh, including there is a multi-purpose facility which could be used for soccer, rugby, softball, baseball... And as part of the Barclay Regional Deal, which is a $78.4 million investment for social and economic improvements in the Barclay, it's it's an investment between local government, the Northern Territory Government and the Australian Government. In there, there's opportunities to improve social and economic opportunities, but there's funding there to bring three sports and rec people to start coordinating the delivery of structures. I was just going to ask you, what you're talking about is top-down stuff. You're not talking about bottom-up. You're not talking about community control. You're not talking about people deciding what it is they might want and and delivering it for them. Well, well, this this has been decided by the people. So the $78.4 million and the 28 initiatives have been developed by the people at the grassroots level. And that's what the good thing about the Barclay Regional Deal is. So in there, there's a there's, uh, positions to have more structured sports here in Tennant Creek. So there'll be three additional uh, people that can help bring those structured sports back. Uh, what we don't have that was happening back then is uh, a large pool of volunteers that can help coordinate sports, pull teams together, build governance in clubs. We're going to have three sports people, sports and rec people here to help build those structures back again so that we can have a whole range of sports, not only here in Tennant Creek, but right across the Barclay. How do you feel with your mayor's hat on, with the negative publicity that's been going down about um, Tennant Creek and, you know, what a disastrous place it is for for community to live? Look, uh, we we faced uh, some national media attention uh, just in February last year. So we're talking 18 months ago, we faced... uh, We're in the national headlines. There was an alleged sexual assault of a two-year-old. And and from there, uh, what we... uh, faced was a whole lot of media attention about crime, about alleged sexual assault, uh, issues around antisocial behaviour but I really feel, talking to people around town, that everybody's pulling together at the moment and I can see some real positive change happening at the moment. 
how do you feel when you see last night I got locked out of my hotel for a variety of reasons yep. and in the half an hour it took me to get back in I saw so many kids on the street with oh. you know nothing to do and nowhere to go yeah look it's it really is heartbreaking it, it really concerns me uh, I can remember a few months ago uh, uh, being out uh, you know just before midnight, I don't go out every night, but I saw exactly that, and I've heard reports of uh, young people wandering the streets at night. There's a whole young lot of young girls saying good night to me as they're yeah, walking it, along the street. Look, you know, it, it's vulnerable. It's it's not good enough, and uh, I, I don't. You're the mayor. Yeah, I'm the mayor, and I, and it's heartbreaking for me to see this. What's happening at the moment is a whole lot of uh, uh, work going on behind the scenes, and look. We're not going to change this overnight, but what we need to do, uh, do is address some of those underlying issues that uh, cause these things to happen. And, and, some of the, and some of the things that we're talking about is housing. We need to ensure that every child has a roof over their head. If they don't, uh, then their health, their safety, their education uh, is all at risk. We need to make sure that there's a big improvement in housing. But how long do you think this will take? You've been here quite a long time yeah. and you've watched the decline. Yep. That's taken a long time. It certainly has. You know, I mean, what is the answer to this? Because it just seems to be a sad sadness. Yeah. Well, as I said, there is some light at the end of the tunnel. This isn't going to change overnight. Uh, part of that uh, Barclay Regional deal is focused on improving the number of houses in Tennant Creek. Some of the things that we've included in the Barclay Regional deal include student boarding facilities, visitor accommodation. Outside of that, uh, the government is investing in a $5 million uh, alcohol rehabilitation centre. That'll free up 16 houses here in Tennant Creek just by building a new centre. Building visitor accommodation, building uh, student accommodation gives uh, visitors that come into town that might normally stay with their family and contribute to some of this overcrowding will have somewhere to stay when they come to visit. A student boarding facility will be somewhere for students to, uh, not only from the remote it areas... It blindingly obvious, doesn't it? It, it does, and, uh, you know... What I'm saying is that uh, uh, it's not going to change overnight, but there's some really good plans in place to when try and make a difference. Well, at the moment, uh, the uh, regional deal was signed in April, and at the moment there's been some working groups put together to start looking at where these facilities will be built. There's funding committed to these projects, and we're going to work through this. Uh, three levels of government working together with a newly established cultural authority group here in Tennant Creek. So we'll be involving all people in the decision-making process, and that's going to start at the grassroots level, not only here in Tennant Creek, but right across the Barclay region. And a cynic might ask, why is this happening you know, was it the, the awful publicity that Tennant Creek received? Has that been a great stimulus to getting something done? Oh, look, there's no, there's no doubt that uh, it put us in the spotlight. It made people uh, stand back and think, there's a problem there. And I always say that uh, as the mayor, even having worked in government, I say that Tennant Creek has been the forgotten town for far too long. And as the mayor what we've been calling for is some massive change and, and what we've been able to do is secure the Barclay Regional deal, all levels of government finally working together 
to try and make some real change and that's that's a real positive in itself. And what's this place going to look like the next time you stand if you do for Mir? How, you know, how long are we going to need to turn it around and give these kids a, a oh, decent um, look, roof over their head? Look, and... uh, as the Mayor, I'm halfway through my term. It's a four-year term. We've got a whole new council, 12 councillors. We've got representation from right across the Barclay. What we've been able to do is move some projects forward. We've got a committed group of councillors. Uh, me as the Mayor, uh, what we came to council saying is that we're going to develop a five-year infrastructure plan to improve facilities for every person here right across the Barclay. We've got that plan in place. We've started delivering on it and the Barclay Regional Deal is more and more funding coming in. I say the Barclay Regional Deal isn't going to fix everything, but I'll tell you what, it's going to take us a long way and with more funding on top of that, once those plans are in place, I'm expecting we'll attract further funding and what we've done uh, is a good plan for the future and I think there's more money to come and we'll be asking and advocating and uh, lobbying the government to make sure this region gets looked after. As I said before, uh, my general feeling is that we've been the forgotten town. We're not going to put up with that. That was uh, the Tanner Creek Mayor there, Steve Edgington, ending that report. Uh, we're going to go to a break now and then we'll be right back. Hi, this is Kevin Capinari and you listen to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Bam! That's right. You're listening to Strong Voices here on Karma Radio this morning. Well, earlier we did hear from the uh, Tanner Creek Mayor, Steve Edgington, who's speaking during the uh, Desert, Farmony, Desert Harmony Festival, which happened in Tanner Creek earlier this month. Uh, but uh, away from the main action of the festival, young people were experimenting with their own forms of music. DJ and mentor Charlie Templar was conducting a noisy session for kids who would like to be party rockers. Charlie is a French Cameroon-born, Australian-based uh, energetic DJ and youth mentor. He has uh, founded a charity which aims to encourage First Nations children to express themselves through music. <laughs> This Desert Harmony Festival 2019 uh, contacted me a few weeks ago in order to come and run the music and DJ workshop. So basically what we do here, we empower young people through DJ workshop. So as you can see, we have seven pair of turntables and uh, we teach the skills associated with DJing. And in return, the kids will take those skills and apply them during the event in communities. I live in Catherine. So I work, I'm an educator, I work in a special needs school and then during the weekend I travel into communities to provide mentoring through, you know, DJing. I'm originally from Cameroon, that's in Central Africa area. It doesn't matter where people come from, as long as they have a skill and they're happy to share it with others, that's the most important. And for me I love empowerment, working with young people, I absolutely adore that. Generally, people say kids are all the same, but when we take skill-wise, they're different because some students or some kids are more gifted than the others. So, but I just make, I just don't make any difference. You know, I work with everybody, and those who have low level of skills, I try to you know help them to improve. Basically, uh, uh, the, the main objective or idea behind this is because a few years ago when I moved up in the NT, people used to book me and fly me into remote communities to do discos. And then over a period of time, I, I thought to myself, why not buy equipment? 
teach kids how to DJ so they can do their own disco. So that instead of spending money, and now it's been successful. And now the next phase is to teach adults so that they can take it as a career pathway opportunity and it's actually happening. Because there are a few adults that I teach. When I have gigs, I call them. If I'm making $5 a gig, let's say as an example, I give them $2, you know, so they can associate the idea of going to work, getting paid. So everyone to everyone understands music, the universal language. It, it is, it is a universal language. And as you can see, the kids come in here and within minutes, they tune in. So it's absolutely amazing how they pick it up faster. Well, it's getting very close to 11 o'clock, uh, 12 o'clock now, so it is time for me to head out of here now. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back the same time tomorrow. Strong voices. Richard